and Are been, you an, calling me names? been an effective tool spoke out. Right, so. yeah, thank you. You'll enjoy the decades of great music with R&R weekday afternoons at 2 on KPFT. <coughs> Hello? Man, where are you? This wedding is lit. I thought you were coming. Ooh, I can't. I'm in bed with the flu. <coughs> the flu? You didn't get a flu shot? Uh, <clears throat> I wish I did. I can't believe I'm missing out on Greg's wedding. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Grandma's about to crowd surf. Grandma's about to what? <coughs> what? Man, I'll call you back. <coughs> oh, man. <coughs> Sounds like another case of flu FOMO. Don't get stuck at home with the flu. A flu shot is safe, effective, and you can get it at the same time as your COVID-19 vaccine. A flu shot is the best way to prevent the flu and its potentially serious complications. It keeps you protected and also protects your loved ones. Protecting our community can't wait. So why get stuck inside with the flu? Don't get flu FOMO. Learn more at GetMyFluShot.org. Welcome to Growing Up in America here on KPFT. And uh, Bob Sanborn here from Children at Risk along with Claire Dutre. Claire, how are you doing today? I am living the dream. How are you? Living the dream is the <laughs> way we work it. Uh, welcome to Growing Up in America on 90.1 KPFT, Pacifica Radio. This 60 Minutes, a discussion on our children, public policy, and how do we as a community do when it comes to taking care of all of our kids. Our theme today we're going to be talking about human trafficking, child trafficking, sex trafficking, uh, and its impact on Texas, its impact on Houston. And when was the first time, Claire, that you sort of heard about human trafficking? This is going to sound planned, but it was like an aha moment. I took a class in college with a survivor of trafficking, actually, and now is mm. a large advocate, and then did an internship, my first internship at a nonprofit um, that combated human trafficking worldwide. So I was very passionate for a very long time in fighting and advocating against human trafficking. It's something that a lot of people get interested in very quickly, right? You see a lot yeah. of interest on college campuses, like how do we fight human trafficking? And one of the questions we want to ask today of our number of guests as we talk about this is, you know, what is Texas doing in this fight? Because in many ways, we lead the nation with pieces of legislation in the fight, but we're not really doing a great job with treating our victims and the survivors right. uh, and uh, those that have sort of lived the experience of human trafficking. So we'll talk a little bit about that today. And of course, we have our thumbs up, thumbs down segment, our date of the day. Date of the day is uh, one in four. What do you think that's all about, One Claire? in four. One in four children are exposed to trafficking. Could be. I hope. One in four children uh, never hear about uh, health education because the state of Texas doesn't allow it in the schools. Hence, they don't learn about. I mean, there's so many things we could go with, but we'll we'll, uh, uh, leave it as that. Uh, I think we're starting today off with uh, uh, Caroline Roberts, who is uh, coming on the phone with us now. Caroline Roberts is the senior staff attorney at Children at Risk, and uh, she is one of the leaders in the fight against human trafficking. And uh, we're excited to have Caroline on the phone with us. And is uh, Caroline there? Caroline. She's on her way. She's, there she is. There's Hi, Caroline. Caroline. How are you doing, Caroline? Good. How are you? Very good. So, Caroline, uh, Claire and I want to know, when we talk about human trafficking in the state of Texas, um, you know, I just mentioned that, you know, we sort of lead the nation in a lot of legislation. But what sort of grade do you give our state for what we've been doing in the fight against trafficking, Caroline? Um, I would give us a solid B+. <laughs> we've done a lot, but there's still room for improvement. Yeah. Yeah, that's not bad, Very comparatively. Good. Yeah, and what well, do we have this legislative session? What do we have on tap? I mean, what are some of the big pieces of legislation uh, that we can expect to hear about when it comes to human trafficking in Texas? Absolutely. So a few that I'm excited about. Um, one is uh, mandating the registration of privately owned ATMs, especially those that are in illicit massage businesses or uh, sexual oriented businesses. Well, why is so, that important, Caroline? I mean, I, I've mentioned this, this law to a number of people, and uh, it's a mm-hmm. big question mark, right? And t- so tell us the importance of this idea of registering uh, ATM machines, private ATM machines. Sure. 
So uh, it, it is a little bit of um, an unusual connection, but it's really logical if you think about it. The guys that go to these illicit massage businesses, they don't want their, their wives, their partners, their families to see how they're spending their money. So they're going to put it on their credit card. They're going to use cash. And um, often case, uh, the business itself will have an ATM where they can withdraw cash. Uh, so then that cash is used to buy sexual services, which uh, can be a form of money laundering. So it gives law enforcement another um, hook by which to get these illicit massage businesses. And when when we think about these illicit massage businesses and uh, child trafficking, uh, Caroline, how much do we think uh, underaged uh, young girls, young boys are engaged in some of the illicit tr- uh, massage places? In illicit massage businesses, uh, I, I actually have never seen um, record of a child being exploited there. It is mostly adult women. Uh, I will say in illicit cantinas, which is another big problem in the Houston area, um, players actually refer to it as the Houston model mm. of trafficking. Uh, there are there have been arrests made um, in which children were rescued from these locations. So we see children engaged in the human trafficking, uh, sort of this illicit business in many different forms in Houston and in Texas. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. What's another and big... these places, unfortunately, aren't unique to Houston either. Yeah, right. very good. What's another bill happening this session that we should look out for? Yeah, so another bill um, is HB 279. It uh, would allow traffickers to better prosecute... Um, or, sorry, but allow prosecutors to better prosecute traffickers who have targeted adults with disabilities. And tragically, this is a um, thing that we see quite often, that traffickers are targeting the most vulnerable, and that includes uh, adults who are um, developmentally or intellectually disabled. Yeah. Do we see a lot of that happening in Texas, Caroline? Yeah, yeah. So when we speak to um, service providers, this is actually brought to us both by prosecutors and by law enforcement, um, you know, they're, they're seeing it fairly regularly. Wow, very good. Yeah, we talked a little bit about the beginning, how most people aren't aware or their knowledge of human trafficking is from TikTok or Instagram, and it's this big kind of scheme-level um, portrayal of trafficking. In your conversations with these other advocacy organizations and just with the people of Texas, how little do people know about these businesses outside their front door? Yeah, I think um, sometimes it's, simpler and more in our backyard than we want to acknowledge. Um, So it's the Alyssa Massage business place that you pass every single day on your way to work. Um, It's the populations that we already know are at risk of a number of different types of, um, you know, victimization. Um, So foster care youth, uh, homeless youth and young adults, um, you know, all of these people that we already know are struggling and uh, we owe it to them to reduce those vulnerabilities and, um, you know, put them in the best place so that they are not vulnerable to traffickers. Wow. Caroline, there are so many myths around human trafficking. I wonder if uh, uh, Claire and I might talk to you about some of these myths and if you could sort of tour or false them and give some context um, and, and one of them is uh, this idea uh, that human trafficking uh, is really just a border problem. Can you talk about that? Sure. So human trafficking is an everywhere problem. Um, it's occurring in urban areas all across the U.S. It's occurring in rural, suburban areas. Um, it's not just along the borders. And even that trafficking that does occur um, you know, a lot of times people think of trafficking that occurs outside of our country, but even that trafficking is largely usually driven by demand coming from, um, you know, the wealthier uh, countries such as ours. And so when we talk about this idea of ending demand, if you end demand, do you end trafficking in our country? Yeah. I mean, without a market, traffickers would not be motivated. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. I would say another myth, especially like I mentioned online at the moment, is that traffickers are um, like undercover big scheme artists and not really necessarily someone you know or someone that can almost groom you and 
put you in a dangerous mm-hmm. situation. So just expelling that myth. Yeah, I mean, traffickers are opportunists, right? right? So they're not looking, they're not, you know, I, I don't know, SEAL Team 6 looking to um, roll up, uh, throw people in a van and roll away. Uh, they're looking for who is most vulnerable, who um, maybe won't be missed or who um, will go willingly, you know, in quotes. Um, and they are manipulative, right? So we see the kind of romantic um, type of trafficking where it is, you know, entering into, again, quote, the romantic relationship with a child or a woman and then convincing them that this is what, this is, this is just something that has to temporarily happen before they can get married. Or this is something that, you know, I know you don't want to do this, but if you love me, you'd really do it. And then it just slowly becomes, um, you know, probably more violent uh, right. and, and more um, forceful. Caroline, uh, a lot of people get their idea of trafficking based upon the movies taken, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's uh, and you know, I've talked about this often, right? That t- to me, the only part of taken that's realistic is that, that first movie that the, there was that shipping container where each of the beds <laughs> is separated by a blanket. It seems like that's the only thing that sort of we've seen in the real world, but people are convinced, right? That if you have a pretty young daughter, uh, that she's going to be kidnapped in the suburbs uh, and brought into trafficking like taken talk a little bit about the chances of that happening. Yeah, it's much more likely that someone that she knows, uh, maybe even someone that you know, because groomers also groom parents, uh, maybe contacts them online or in person, and then slowly um, convinces your daughter that this is actually her will. This is actually what she wants to do because she is so in love with this person. That's more what it looks like. It looks more like, and there's so much intersection with, um, you know, abusive relationships than it does... uh, an abduction. Yeah. Yeah. And thinking of, you gave Texas a B plus. So let's focus back or look back on last session. What are some wins that Texas has made and how can we progress and build momentum on those wins? Absolutely. So HB 1540, that was the um, Human Trafficking Prevention Council's uh, big AG omnibus bill. Um, Within that bill, it included a provision that actually made Texas the first state to make buying sex a state jail felony. So we went from um, two sessions ago, uh, buying sex was a felony on the fourth offense, um, but only 10% of arrests for prostitution were buyers. So almost no buyer, if, if any buyer, uh, has ever been charged with four counts of buying, right? So now um, that threat of felony that actually is holding these buyers accountable. Um, in addition, it provided extra protections for children in residential treatment centers. So those are a lot of the high acute need um, foster care t- kids who are very vulnerable um, when they leave these residential treatment centers, and traffickers know that. This idea, um, Caroline, of, of uh, buying... Uh, of, of outlawing the idea of buying, right? It's it's sort of an idea that sort of sprung up out of, that's uh, called the Nordic model. Talk a little bit about how the Nordic model compares to what we're doing in Texas. Yeah, so the Nordic model uh, basically makes it illegal to buy sex, but those who are offering to sell sex, uh, they are not arrested. So... Uh, basically anyone who um, is is selling or is being trafficked, potential victim, um, they are not going to be arrested and further victimized, but the buyers are going to be prosecuted. So kind of the Texas version of that, um, still uh, women and children, which is one of the things that we need to change, uh, can be arrested for prostitution or prostitution-related offenses in Texas. Um, but we are seeing those arrests go down. We're seeing buyers being arrested uh, much more often, and the penalties for uh, buying are much, much um, harsher than the penalties for selling now. You have a a blockbuster last question for Caroline? 
Oh, not really, but I have a question. <laughs> okay, go ahead. We can just call it the blockbuster. <laughs> um, I've spoken to you or with you about this before, but as a former teacher here in residential treatment centers, you have students bounce around all the time from those centers. What are something either in schools or in businesses that people can do to help inform, or what's the importance of informing these students and parents of the dangers of child trafficking? Yeah, so we should be talking to kids about trafficking in an age-appropriate way. Um, but I think even more than that, we should be talking to kids about healthy relationships. Right. Uh, because we know that is kind of the end that a trafficker uses. And so kids really need to understand what a healthy relationship looks like and what an unhealthy or you know potentially abusive relationship looks like. I think that would be instrumental in guarding kids against uh, grooming. Caroline, next week, uh, there's going to be a big rally on the state capitol uh, in the fight against human trafficking. Talk a little bit about that and how people, if they want to be a part of that, can participate. Yeah, absolutely. So January 24th, next Tuesday, we will have an anti-human trafficking uh, rally on the south steps of the capitol. There will be um, uh, a lot of advocates and allies out um, you know, with their with their signs and uh, armed with one pagers, we'll have about an hour long rally where uh, you, at Dr. Bob, and uh, legislators will be speaking on their priorities for this session. Uh, and we're really just there to make sure that you know legislators understand that this is important to their constituents. So we want to show up in numbers, and then afterwards, uh, you can meet with your legislator. Um, and just, again, let them know this is an issue that's really important to, to you and that this is something that they need to focus on. And, and I want to reflect back to your solid B-plus very briefly because a solid B-plus is certainly not an A. And if we were going to get an A in the state of Texas in the fight against trafficking, uh, you know, he, here we are, sort of one of the larger centers for human trafficking in our country. What what could we do to sort of not be a large center and to get an A in the fight? Sure. So I think there are a few changes that need to be made. I would like to see um, more of a focus on um, going after those who are profiting from human trafficking. Just like without demand, there would be no trafficking. Without profits, there would be no trafficking. Um, so uh, ATMs is one way to do it. Um, there's also a bill that would allow local government attorneys to get penalty fees against illicit massage businesses. So again, taking their money um, and just making it impossible for them to profit. Uh, as well, you know, more training. So we're looking at training um, commercial drivers, uh, drivers of transportation network companies, um, or that drive for transportation network companies. And then, uh, you know, I think a, a big kind of blind spot uh, or area that um, Texas could improve upon is that, you know, even though it may not happen very often, uh, it is still legal to arrest a child for prostitution who is 17 mm. and to refer a child underneath that age as a child in need of services. And that those juvenile referrals are really, um, you know, re-victimizing a victim. So bringing into accord uh, the definition of human trafficking, which acknowledges that these children cannot consent to being trafficked um, with also our conduct and how we're treating these kids. They don't need to be criminalized. They need to be provided services. Right. Caroline Roberts is the senior staff attorney and the lead in the fight against human trafficking at Children at Risk and the Center to Ex- the Center to End Trafficking and Exploitation of Children. Uh, Caroline, we're about to do our segment, our thumbs up, thumbs down segment. And I wonder if you might stay on the line and be a part of this because we're talking about the idea of should parents be able to uh, take their child's phone and read through the technology. Uh, would you would, mm-hmm. would you be able to stay on the line and, and be with us for the thumbs up, thumbs down? Sure, sure. Oh, yeah, that's very good of you. Okay, we're going to go to our music first. thumbs up, thumbs down. What's that music, Claire? You're like That's all Involver. Of- oh, we play it every week. <laughs> it's so good. I just need to. You know, I, know. I guess I'll just wait for next week to hear it again. So, you have to hear the full track. So one, day. one of the things, one of the questions we get from a lot of parents is, how do I ensure that my child 
uh, is not being exploited technology-wise? Mm-hmm. How do we make sure that my child is maybe not doing things they should be doing online or people aren't contacting them that shouldn't be contacting them? And parents have this real difficulty with the idea that maybe their phone is like their diary, like maybe right. it should be offline. And and no doubt kids also have a problem with their parents, like this is like my private mm-hmm. life, you can't involve yourself but we've seen over the course of uh, with the last 12, uh, 13, 14 years that we have iPhones in our country that parents have taken upon themselves. Many parents have said, this is what we do in our house with technology. Uh, at, the, at the end of the day or when I pick my kids up from school, I have the right, right to go through my child's technology. I have the right to go on their laptop, their computer, their phone. And if anything is – if history is erased, if texts are erased – I then confiscate the phone. And it's sort of like this little technique. But I think there's discontent or there's dissent, oh, yeah. certainly, on this. And uh, before I go to Cl- to uh, to Caroline, I'd love to you to Claire, what is your thought? Thumbs up or thumbs down on the idea that parents can, can really get involved in all the technology of the child? Well, yours was a very intense example of a parent taking their phone every day to yeah. scan every app. Um, I will say I I have a weird thought about this because um, even I'm sure Caroline will mention this, but as you talked about, there's um, you never know who's reaching out to your child online, but it's also there's so many avenues. So you can look at their text and that can be clear. But now we have Snapchat, we have TikTok DMs. Yeah. Um, we had a mingle when I was younger, but that's a whole different story. Um, so I know there are parents who ask me when I tutor or babysit their children, or especially teenagers, should my child have Snapchat? And I'm explaining to them kind of the safety concern of things disappear, people can yeah. reach out. Um, but it is a breach of what the child feels like, their independence. Like this is the one thing that's mine, like you mentioned. Yeah. Um, so my parents actually didn't go through mine ever. Should, uh, should they have, Claire? No, gosh, no. But <laughs> I, I also had some pretty great friends. So when I was struggling, they would reach out to my parents um, uh. and kind of breach that gap, which sometimes was for the better, sometimes eh. But so you're I don't basically know. thumbs down on parents getting involved in the technology. I know, but I, I'm I'm hesitant only because now kids are getting phones younger. I had mine starting in high school, so I had the whole responsibility talk prior yeah. to that. Yeah, yeah. And you're sort of a Generation Z, aren't you? I mean, you're you're on the younger side. I don't am I X? I'm 97. What is? Yeah, I, I have no I, idea. I don't know. I, no I don't know. I don't think Gen Z claims me. I'm too oh. millennial for them. So <laughs> they just stick me in Ca- the middle. Caroline, what's the reality here on this on phones and technology? How involved should parents be? Yeah, so I'm pro- I probably fall somewhere in the middle. Um, I definitely think that it's very important that you be involved, and I think that you should have you should monitor your children's phones and also um, gaming systems and other mm, forms, yeah. Yeah. other forms of technology. Um, yeah, gaming uh, apps are one of those that uh, have actually been an avenue for traffickers, surprisingly. Um, that said, uh, I think, you know, it's up to parents to figure out where that line is. Like, reading every single individual um, conversation seems a bit... Um, too you safe. Know, it's it too might safe. hit at that independence. Um that being said, I think what's most important is that your child knows and understands what the rules are so that there's no sneaking around on either end. <laughs> um, so they, they, if you're going to read all of their conversations, if you're going to check their phones, they know when you're going to do it and, and how um, because there needs to be trust in you as well. And um, also just a reminder that kids know more about technology than we do. (laughs) They'll find a way. And then it is, if you're super involved, it might drive them to find like an avenue that you can't look at. I I think the idea of having a basic rule, though, where parents and children have this this idea that the phone is not your diary and at any point I might want to look at it. And it's a way of keeping you safe as well for people to say, hey, you can't do this because my mom monitors my phone. It's almost a crutch for kids as well. And sort of, uh, you know, my dad used to say a lock keeps a thief uh, an honest man from being a thief or something like that. Uh, I wish I could remember. What that was. <laughs> but I think this idea, the threat of a parent looking right. is oftentimes enough to keep kids sort of doing the right thing. So I'm going to go uh, thumbs up to parents being uh, engaged. Parents need to know the rules and yeah. they do need to understand that it's not 
hands off the phone, that it's a, a, a dual trust mm-hmm. type situation. So, Caroline, are there any legalities around this, or is that uh, not really when it comes to <laughs> yeah, parents? You're, you're perfectly uh, able to look at your own uh, child's phone. You probably pay for it. You so. probably own yeah. the phone, right? You almost certainly do. So, Caroline Roberts, Senior <laughs> Staff you, Attorney at Children at Risk. Hey, thanks for calling in for this extended stay, Caroline. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. All right, take care. Layla Mazali, how you doing, Layla? I'm doing well. How are you? Very good. Layla is the director of the Center for Social Measurement and Evaluation at Children at Risk and is uh, full of all sorts of data. What is our data point today, Layla? Um, well, did did you have a teaser? We did. We one did in four. four. We did one <laughs> in four. And uh, what did you say, Claire, was the one in four? Well, was... no, I, I peaked. But I did say oh, that one okay. in four children were exposed or could be exposed to trafficking. Is that what it is? I feel like I was pretty close. What Layla? Is, what is it, Layla? So it's, that's not far off, although it's not all children, but it's, if one in four youth runaways meet someone interested in trafficking them within the first 48 hours of them leaving home. Wow, that's for interesting. Those- and it's something we didn't cover with Caroline, right, is that a lot of the kids that are trafficked in our country are these runaway and throwaway kids, homeless children uh, that uh, are vulnerable and used for trafficking or engaged or enticed into trafficking. Yeah, exactly. So they're the kids who are experiencing abuse or neglect at home, their youth in the foster care system, youth who identify as LGBTQ+, um, are all at increased risk of running away, so they're at an increased risk of being trafficked. And uh, there was a law firm, I guess, that said that, uh, that did a little bit of work on this, and Houston is like one of the worst cities for runaways in terms of trafficking. Is that right, Layla? So they did, they did say that, yeah, Houston is one of the worst cities in the U.S. Um, for human trafficking, although... The data on that um, is a little unclear, and different states track their trafficking data differently. Yeah. So we can't be 100% sure, but we do know that a large number of overall trafficking victims are in Texas. And Layla, a couple of years ago, the Center for Social Measurement Evaluation produced a map basically showing you know where illicit trafficking establishments were around the state of Texas and how close they are to schools. I think that was that's sort of another interesting piece. And and a lot of what people expected was that these place, places might be on the wrong side of the tracks, if you will, but they were actually in the moneyed parts of town, which was sort of interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I, their proximity to schools, of course, doesn't necessarily mean that the kids at those schools are right. at an increased risk of being trafficked. But it is true that, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily only happen in low-income areas. Um, these IMBs, illicit massage businesses, are all over the city. And in regards to the runaways and the foster care, is, I mean, is there... Is there anything that we should be doing specifically uh, around that, Layla? Because it just seems like that's a horrible number. Right. I mean, there's so much that can be done. It's a huge problem to tackle. I mean, I think one thing that parents can do is understanding that accepting and embracing their child's identity, regardless of their gender expression or sexuality, is going to go a really long way Mm. in keeping them safe at home. Yeah. Yeah. And back to what Caroline said, again, thinking of especially like kids in the foster care system um, or just experiencing any kind of neglect or not. Sometimes they have someone that's grooming them. It might be an abused relationship. So thinking back to teaching them about healthy relationships in schools really, really can make an impact. They don't understand um, when they're at the most vulnerable moments that the person reaching out to them could in fact be dangerous and run away very quickly to them. Yeah. Um, Layla, one of the things that we hear is that, and, and I'm part of the blame on this because Maybe 15 years ago, I wrote an, uh, an opinion piece for the Houston Chronicle where I said Houston was the hub of human trafficking in America. And we hear that quote a lot. But in, indeed, what we're seeing is that any large city uh, uh, in the U.S. and certainly in the South where we see more runaways and homeless youth, uh, any of these large cities are big centers of trafficking. And is that a combination of demand and where runaways go? I mean, tell, talk to us a little bit about that. 
I mean, I would just be speculating, but I mean, no. the larger the economy, typically the larger um, any market would be, including illicit markets and, and, and black markets. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's just an interesting. Lots of hubs for human <laughs> trafficking. Layla Mazali is the director of the Center for Social Measurement and Evaluation at Children at Risk. Layla, thank you very much for the data of the day. Thank you, Layla. Thank you. And with us now is uh, Sharon Watkins-Jones. And Sharon is... Hey, Sharon, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about you? Very good. Sharon is the director, the chief equity officer, and the director of the Texas Racial Equity Collaborative at Children at Risk and with the Texas Family Leadership Council. Sharon, uh, we wanted to talk to you a little bit today about children of color engaged in trafficking. Talk to us a little bit about what's going on there. Yes, it's interesting. A few years ago, the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation released a snapshot on the state of black women and girls in terms of trafficking in the United States. And one of the things that the report shows is that um, black women and girls are experiencing, of course, higher rates of trafficking due to a number of factors like low socioeconomic status, Mm -hmm. the intersection of that and child welfare, welfare involvement detachment from the educational system, um, criminal justice involvement, and histories of physical or sexual abuse in certain um, communities also due to um, the socioeconomic status. And so compared to racial counterparts, black women and girls are suffering higher rates of those combined factors. And according to the FBI, 57.5% of uh, juvenile prostitution arrests associated with trafficking are black children. Yeah. Yeah. Thinking about especially the inequities and disparity disparities just in the communities alone, what are some ways that communities can help lower those statistics and, and trafficking, especially for the black women and girls? I think addressing even basic needs would right. be um disparities in basic needs would, would go a long t- way toward reducing some of those numbers. You know, when you talk about basic needs, we're talking about shelter, hunger, um, sleep, and those sorts of disparities lead to um, the environment that, you know, is is ripe for trafficking. Especially, I heard you speaking earlier about uh, runaways and Mm -hmm. and kids finding themselves in in, uh, positions that they consider untenable, you know, often think that the streets are are better and they would be vulnerable to into these situations, especially if their basic needs aren't being met where they are. One of the things that we talked about earlier with Caroline was this sort of notion that what a lot of people perceive as trafficking is what they see in Taken, right? And so mm-hmm. you hear sometimes moms from the suburbs say, oh, I have a pretty little girl. She's going to be kidnapped. When indeed, the, when we look at the numbers of kids in trafficking, they're much more likely to be black girls and boys, uh, mm-hmm. Latino uh, boys and girls, Latino, Latinas, uh, and, and certainly young Asian women. Uh, talk a little bit about that, about some of these misconceptions, Sharon. Yeah, you know, interestingly, according to the Institute for Women's Policy Research, black girls are more likely to experience poverty than their racial counterparts. So that's a, that's a huge factor because traffickers tend to target individuals with a low socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. So when you look at things like unemployment, debt, and need for individuals to provide for themselves or protect themselves, you know, victims are much likely to leave current situations in order to find safety or find security. And so, you know, rather than look at stereotypes about certain people or certain cultures, you know, really it's an issue of poverty, an issue of safety, you know, how kids are vulnerable when they don't feel like their current situation is tenable. Right. And looking at that same report you mentioned, it goes a lot into the foster care system as a whole, which we talked a little Mm -hmm. bit with Caroline about and how runaways from the foster care system, especially are most vulnerable or not most. um, That's a a projection, but are quite vulnerable to sex trafficking, labor trafficking. um, And in there, I'm trying to find the exact exact statistic. Oh, um, it mentioned that black girls are the most most likely to run away from the foster care system. 
Sure. To and, and in general, black kids are overrepresented in the foster care system. Yeah. Right. They make up 40% of kids in foster care. And, and um, you know, 23% of the black children make up 23% of the foster care system. And, you know, particularly in that age, uh, you know, 15 to 18, you know, a lot of those kids will find themselves homeless when they age out, you know, and if they see that that's what's at the end of, of the line for them for foster care and there's, you know, no extended family right. to provide the support that many of us are accustomed to, you know, they look to, you know, those who falsely hold out to them some modicum of security. Right. Very good. One of the big things to look at, right, is that we often think of one type of kid being trafficked when indeed it's it's all it's more representative of the children in the state of Texas than anything. Sharon Jones from Children at Risk and from the Texas Racial Equity Collaborative. Thank you so much, Sharon, for your for all that you do for being on the program today. Thanks for having me. Y'all have a great day. All of these lines are being crossed over. All right, next up on the program uh, here on Growing Up in America, Carrie Taylor is with us. Carrie is the executive director of Houston Unbound. And uh, Carrie, it's been a long time. How you been doing? It has been a long time, but it's really good to hear your voice. I quote you so often. You, you, sh- you would be very <laughs> proud of me. <laughs> I hope it's accurate quotes. That's my only hope. Right? I do, too. I do too. Uh, yeah. Carrie, talk a little bit. What's the sort of the elevator speech for Houston Unbound now? Uh, because the work that you're doing is extraordinary. Give us a, a little snapshot of that. Well, what Unbound Now aims to do is to activate local communities and resource them to meet the needs of survivors of human trafficking that we've identified. And we really kind of run in three lanes. We do prevention and awareness education. We do, um, my favorite, professional training. And then we do survivor advocacy because once you actually make people aware of the problem and then you start equipping people to identify them and connect them with resources, people start calling you, right? And so um, we were fortunate to open our advocacy center in Houston in um, January of 2020. And I think we've served um, a little over 300 survivors through our advocacy center since that time. And so um, all of those things uh, you know, is I, I love the way they're all related. I don't really see how I can talk about one without the other, yeah. but that's that's what we do. And we've we've grown actually. Now um, we have offices all across Texas, and we're yeah. one big organization. So, in addition to our office in Houston, we have um, our North Texas office, which serves Dallas Fort Worth area. Bryan College Station, Waco, and we've got a new office in Austin. So we're very excited and optimistic about um, our part in fighting human trafficking these days. Carrie, you and I have been in the fight against trafficking for a while. I mean, you're significantly, significantly younger than I am, but, but uh, <laughs> you know, we've been in this fight for a while. How have you seen the fight change in Texas uh, in terms of where we were, uh, you know, a decade ago to where we are today? Well, I first of all, um, just the build out of CCA advocacy and collaborative partnerships working, you know, with mm-hmm. multidisciplinary teams. That's been an amazing game changer. I really love that. Um, so I think more more people are aware of the problem. But like you in your previous segment, we're saying they sometimes they still have misconceptions yeah. about what it looks like. And so um, we do all we can to, you know, shape that view. I I do. Can we talk about the state of prevention education in Texas? Do we dare do that? Sure. Let's do that. (laughs) Because what I I, I know that we have worked for so long and and you remember when we were just trying to uh, make sure that human trafficking and prevention education was required in public schools. And we we accomplished that. I mean, everybody was on board. Everyone wanted um, students to know how to keep themselves safe and their friends safe and how to report and get help. And then I think there was just a really unfortunate, I think um, it was well-intentioned. But when that amendment was put on uh, House Bill 9 last year in a special session, kind of in the 11th hour, we, no one knew how that was going to impact prevention education until after the session was 
all said and done. And I just want to give a little snapshot. So, um, for instance, Pearland ISD, one of the suburbs of Houston, who's proactive, been really engaged in getting this education to their students, um, has engaged with us. And we do education for all of their eighth graders and their freshmen every other year. That way they catch all of their students before they graduate. And prior to this amendment that requires a parental opt-in versus an opt-out, we were seeing uh, 97 to 99% of all of those students. But when we did that education last year, only 23% of the 8th graders and 21% of the ninth graders were able to attend. Mm. And so you see what I'm saying? I think that was an intention to really give parents um, knowledge and keep them involved in what's being presented to them. But that opt-in provision has made it really difficult. I was a good parent when my children were in school, Mm -hmm. and I certainly missed lots of papers that came home and permission form. And um, so I I just think people need to know that we are there. Gosh, Unbound Now and other organizations have developed beautiful, really relevant, um, engaging prevention education that our students are not getting to see it now. They're yeah. not getting to engage with it because of that one uh, provision. And yep. I, I really hope that's something we can change. I don't know what your thoughts on that are. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think when we go in as well-intentioned, especially on this issue that gets so much bipartisan support, right? I think mm-hmm. if we go in there with good intentions and if we know the right people, I mean, that's always important, right, Carrie, that we know the right people there who can sort of lead on this. You know a couple of good people I know. And I think that it's it's just important that uh, that people understand the realities of what a little change can do, you know, what how much of an impact it can have on our children and families. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We really need to be careful about that. Yeah. Um, and I know that um, some of the, the legislation you have um, projected or what, yeah. what you're supporting, um, one of the things I know is that where human trafficking education has been required of an industry or a professional, those, those groups have been really compliant. Yeah. Think about um, hotel education yep. and then like licensure renewals for Um, anybody who's got a license has to have some human trafficking education to renew that license. And we've, we've talked to hundreds and hundreds of dentists, nurses, pharmacists, social workers. So that's been really great. I, I love what you're supporting about transportation uh, professionals on the ride share. Yeah. With ride shares. I think a lot of people don't understand how much ride shares contribute or how much they see. Right. Yeah. Um, So Mm -hmm. I think uh, we're real excited about the possibilities there. Yeah, I want to talk a little about survivor advocacy. Um, One of the myths that was busted when I was learning about trafficking um, in college, when I really thought of it more as a out of the United States, taken movie-esque idea, is that trafficking survivors don't have access to a lot of care after or are not able to leave their situation or feel like they're not able to because of that lack of access to care and unknowing of how they can seek help. Um, How is Texas doing in survivor care and advocacy, and how can we as a state improve to provide them resources? Um, Well, you know, it all comes down to funding, right? But I I think um, Texas, uh, more than other states, has um, proactively built out a model um, that addresses um, advocacy for minors and what we used to call transitional youth, kind of 18 to 24. And as funding was a little depleted, we, we kind of had to knock that number from 24 down to 21. I've been really excited to learn that next year um, they're going to go back up to 24 with the funding. So um, across the whole state, in every county, the goal is to have um, designated um, advocates for, for these victims and, and to equip officers and ERs and school counselors and whoever that might be to identify them. And agencies like ours that have 24-7 hotlines, once we're activated by law enforcement primarily, we're on scene within 90 minutes and we 
um, based on some really sound research that says if you can form a trust-based relationship with that identified victim in the the moment of crisis, um, their likelihood of running away or running back to their trafficker is greatly reduced, and um, that there's a much better outcome for them because of that. If they do run away, they really have this advocate's number and they reach out to them. And, you know, in practice, we're really seeing that with our numbers. Um, We're not having very many run back. And those who have, for us, at least in one year I was familiar with, we recovered all of them because they reached back out to their advocate. So it's really important work that's being done through the governor's office, the child sex trafficking team is um, organizing all of that. Of course, you know, I'd love to see more funding for adults, too, because we've just had it breaks my heart if somebody's yeah. 25 and reaching out for help to say, you know, we couldn't help you. So, so we've done everything we can to, you know, um, raise the money to do that. But um, overall, I think we're making great strides in Texas, so much so that Louisiana is um, modeling their new programs after Texas. You know, you know, a lot of states could model after, especially when it comes to trafficking. Uh, I think a lot of mm-hmm. states could model some of the stuff that we've done here. I think it's been extraordinary, and it's because of leaders like you, Carrie. So, uh, I want to thank you very much for being on the Growing Up in America program, and keep up the great work uh, at, with Houston Unbound now and uh, Unbound overall. And thank you so much, Carrie, for what you do. And we look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you, Carrie. Oh, I will. Thank you so much. I really feel privileged and humbled to um, get to do it alongside people like you. Thank you so much. Take care, Carrie. Deep in the heart of Texas, the prairie sky is wide and high. Deep in the heart of Texas. All right, are you ready to go out to El Paso? I am, I am. Yeah. We just had our a great song introduction to travel our way there. <laughs> yeah. So we have on the line with us is Linda Cortado. Linda is the director of the Children's Immigration Network at Children at Risk. She's out in El Paso. Uh, Linda, first off, I wanted to ask you, Linda, how are you doing today, by the way? Great. It's good to be here with you all. Very good. Thanks for being on the Growing Up in America program. Can can we go specifically to what's been happening at the port of entries in El Paso to start us off? Uh, because there's been so much attention being paid to El Paso and to what's happening. Uh, give us a brief idea of uh, what's happening and how does it impact uh, children and families? Well, the future of Title 42 still remains unclear, um, especially since the Supreme Court intervened last month. Um, but we are hoping that the, the federal court order will stand and that Title 42 will be dismantled for good, which means that the border will open and business as usual will continue. And that means that persons who are lawfully seeking asylum can go to any bridge, hmm. let a CBP officer there know we're seeking asylum um, so that they can be properly processed. Um, you saw El Paso in the news a lot because a lot of families began to understand that Title 42 was was beginning to end and that now if they could uh, notify CBP agents of their presence in the U.S., that they would then properly process them for asylum. And this includes persons from Venezuela um, who and Cubans, for example, who um, were not being and sent back to Mexico under Title 42. But shortly after that, the Biden administration reversed that, and and now they are being expelled. Um, But for those migrant families who do enter the U.S. and seek asylum in this country, um, what's important um, for people to know is that they have a final destination. Um, Many of them have receiving families in other parts of the country, um, who will support them, who will take care of them. And there are others that don't always, and they may need some time to figure out that final destination. Um, and so we saw a lot of persons 
essentially homeless after yeah. they cross through and a lot of families sleeping out in the cold, mm-hmm. um, needing that extra support and El Paso does what it always does best. It, it came together, our community to support these migrants, help keep them safe and warm yeah. and, and support them through this process so that they can seek asylum in our country. Um, I, we want to keep our eyes on this, right? Because there's just, uh, uh, such a large impact, and and when you just look at humanity overall, and you don't look about citizenship, uh, look at issues of citizenship. These are a lot of kids. These are a lot of families that deserve better, right? I mean, we just need to be taking care of a lot of these kids, uh, and uh, and you know maybe follow the model of El Paso, right? What is happening in El Paso is something that is extraordinary, right? To have the food trucks come out and blankets and neighbors mm-hmm. just doing everything they can for these families. It's uh, it's an extraordinary thing to watch. So it's a, it's a big deal. I, I want to switch over to, uh, we're talking about trafficking today. And just in a few minutes, a, a, a quick update, because I really want to get to our fun five questions with you as well. But uh, one, oh. one of the things, <laughs> yeah, 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 you, you should do. Oh, that's what I'm saying is uh, one of the things that, uh, that, I think is a big myth, right? Is that I remember telling someone recently, I said, oh, yeah, we've been super busy. And they said, is it because of trafficking and all those families coming across the border? Talk about sort of the correlation between uh, sex and labor trafficking, but specifically child sex trafficking and the kids that are coming across our border. Those are not kids that are being lured here for trafficking purposes. They're really coming for other reasons. Right. I mean, many of them are coming to seek asylum. Um, Many are coming as unaccompanied minors, for example. Um, You know, it's hard for me to say really uh, what the reality is, and I think that's concerning. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, for someone who's represented immigrants, I think silence is is a concern. It should always be a concern because these populations are just more vulnerable than others. Um, you know, women and children suffer disproportionately from trafficking because they're forced to live in poverty. They suffer yeah. from gender discrimination, illiteracy, and low levels of education. Um, and when you throw immigrant status in there, now they're also fearing deportation. So I don't think we also have an accurate sense of what's going on because these communities are so fearful of coming forward um, to, to seek support to help prosecute these crimes. Um, I have represented, um, you know, siblings, for example. One had just turned 18, and he was detained, and he came through Mexico from Honduras with a sister who was 11. And unfortunately, they also encountered um, a smuggler who happened to also be a part of a sex smuggling ring um, and so they were able to provide corroborating information to the FBI, Homeland Security. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I just, I, I don't know what the landscape really looks like because a lot of these populations suffer in silence. Yeah. Right. I remember not to paint a picture that it's all based on luring, but when I worked in D.C., they spoke a lot to um, in the lure, it would be the promise of a job, a passport, citizenship, etc. And that's kind of how mm-hmm. they got their victims to the United States. Um, and like you said, mm-hmm. once you're here, their passport, their information was kind of withheld by their trafficker. Mm-hmm. And now they're vulnerable. Either they don't speak the language or they don't know where to seek. Um, I spoke with one woman that did find someone and they turned her back to the trafficker. So it's um, scary yeah. to think about the vulnerabilities that these children's face. Very good. Uh, let's Bye, go. Terrific. Let's go to our final five questions with Linda Corchado. <laughs> so, Linda, <laughs> what did you? Uh, yeah, I know that was an, an excellent segue. Don't you <laughs> think know. it was You're just yeah, it was very, very <laughs> good, very smooth? Don't you think? <laughs> I, think I mean, so. I specialize in the it's smooth, Texas, so we don't smooth really smooth and abrupt. <laughs> so, uh, Linda, what is what did you want to be when you were growing up? Question number one. Uh, I wanted to be a geologist. <laughs> I, I actually would. I would know a deal. I would like rock. It was the worst sure. thing. My mom would have to sew pockets and like because I would just carry pebbles. Wow! Um, but I was just really interested in 
the earth formation and yeah I that's just totally random. Wow, wow, very good. Well, you live in El Paso, a lot of rocks out there. <laughs> okay, my question uh, My yeah. question is if you could go back and have a conversation with yourself at any age, what age would you choose and why? Wow. Oh. These are supposed to be easy fun questions, Claire. I love the hard hitting. <laughs> I'm very introspective. Uh, you know, it's funny. I've talked to Dr. Bob about this too, but I would talk to my preschool self um, because I was actually, um, it was determined that I would be in bilingual kindergarten um, because I didn't know the the people, the figurines on Sesame Street. I didn't know who Big Bird was, for example. And so when I was told, no, you're going to need a bilingual education first, I felt really like I did something wrong. And so I would tell that little girl that felt like, you know, being bilingual and, and speaking Spanish was some bad thing. I'd say it's, it's the most amazing gift you've been given. And just, just watch, you'll see. <laughs> what was your favorite TV show as a kid, Linda? As a kid? You know, I have to be honest, I didn't really watch a lot of TV. Look at her. <laughs> Um, Except so, for Sesame oh, no. Street. So I, pretentious, I, I, even as a child. Oh, no, I don't do TV. Great. Just books. <laughs> <laughs> this question might be terrible because of that, but who would you have play you in a movie about your life? Yeah, who would you have play you? Yeah, that's good. Who would, who would, star, who would star in the Linda Corchado story? Uh, I mean, I love Selena Gomez. All right. Oh, yeah. I, think, I think she'd kill it. I love her. Yeah, you guys, yeah, you guys I mean, look I identical, too. Yeah, yeah. You guys are identical <laughs> as well, so that's very good. I don't hey. know about that. <laughs> <laughs> Linda Corchado is the director of the Children's Immigration Network at Children at Risk, and she's in El Paso and heading up all the great work to make sure that kids coming across the border, kids living in the in Texas, uh, have a fair shake at success. Thank you very much, Linda, for all the work that you do. And thanks for being on the Growing Up in America program. So, Claire, Claire, it's uh, another episode. Thank you for the great work know. that you do, by the oh, way. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. So, another episode. I'm going to be at that rally next week in the fight against trafficking on the steps Correct. of the Capitol. I know. Are you going to be there as well, Claire? I am not. My friend is in town and leaving that day. But I'm filling, sending full support and holding it down in Houston. Wow. Very good. Hey, we'll see everyone next time on Growing Up in America. Until then, we do this each and every day for children. Community Media 90.1 KPFT Houston has brought its listeners nearly 53 years of commercial-free content from your own friends and neighbors. We recently launched a new studio home located at 4504 Caroline Street in the Upper Museum District in Houston. We serve the community in many ways, and in return, they provide the support for the idea that we need a local voice. Today, we use that voice to reach out to you and ask you to bring canned and other shelf-stable foods to supply the Mana Food Pantry of the Third Ward, located just blocks from here. We will be collecting food at our community media station from Wednesday, January 25th through Sunday, January 29th. We request that you bring a donation of cash or food contributions of at least $20 to help those in need in our own community. Let's work together to stamp out hunger in our own backyard. This is 90.1 KPFT-FM, FMHD1, used. Hey, wouldn't it be great if life came with a remote control? You know, you could hit pause when you needed to or hit rewind. 
Like that time you knocked down that wasp's nest. Uh-oh. Or that time you forgot to roll up your windows in the car wash. Fantastic. Yeah, a remote control would have come in handy then. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome. But pre-diabetes does. With early diagnosis and a few healthy changes like managing your weight, getting active, stopping smoking, and eating healthier, you can stop pre-diabetes before it leads to type 2 diabetes. It's easy to learn your risk. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Life doesn't come with a remote control. 